0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and essayist Fiona Wright. Fiona joined me to talk about her new book, The World Was Whole. It explores our relationship to the places we inhabit, as well as our own relationship to our physical bodies. Fiona talked about her lived experience with a chronic illness. I'm really excited to be speaking with my next guest, Fiona Wright and I've spoken to her before, you may recall, and we discussed an essay that she wrote in The Lifted Brow about clean eating and uh, this obsession that we have with food and how we talk about food. And uh, Fiona, you may also know from her previous works, there are many, but one I'll mention, which is somewhat related to this new book, is called Small Acts of Disappearance. And it's a beautiful memoir that uh, Fiona wrote, and it was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. She has now written a new book. It's called The World Was Whole and it's a series of essays which are just so fascinating and all very different but they do have a, a continual I guess narrative thread. They are different looks at Fiona's experience of the physical environment and also her physical self and uh, it will become more revealing to you as to why that's so important but I'll just welcome Fiona now and hopefully Skype works. Hi there, Fiona. (laughs) Hi, Amy. It's really lovely to talk to you. Great to have you back on the show. And I was just really excited to see that you had a new workout, as I'm sure many others were, because your writing is really quite unique and also the perspective from which you write is really unique and of which you highlight certainly in your book that many, particularly in the medical profession, Often people try and stick you in a box so that they can I guess categorize you and know what to do.
1: yeah that, that's right and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately I have a physical illness that's that's incredibly rare um, it's so rare that when it was diagnosed, Eighteen months after I first fell ill, the first thing the doctor said was, uh, "I've seen five cases of this in the last fifteen years," Mm. Um, (laughs) which you know is is really kind of what you want to hear from a doctor. So it's a it's a kind of tick in the muscles around the stomach that can make it very. I, I throw up a lot after I eat. It's the sort of short story, but the problem is that trying to manage that by cutting out the foods that I thought. Were triggering the vomiting really got very complicated for me very quickly, and it, it developed into an eating disorder at some point in the early years. I, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to pinpoint exactly when. So most of the treatment I ended up getting was for anorexia, because you know that's a much more common illness and and better understood, even though it's still not very well understood. But the treatment protocols that exist for that don't quite work uh, if you can't reliably keep your food down
0: (laughs) yes exactly it's not a matter of your mind uh, willing yourself to keep your food down you have lost that physical control
1: that's right that's right the funny thing about that is there were many many people I met in treatment who were very envious of that
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine that yeah
1: yeah, but it, it does it, it did make treatment very difficult. It was often difficult for me to be accepted into programmes in the first place. So I would have to convince the doctors why they should treat me. And it also meant that my experience of those programs was was really difficult and, mm. and quite disheartening at times. And, you know, it didn't work.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, not surprisingly. And I mean, life is very complicated. It's not really very straightforward with any illness. There's so many mm-hmm. other background factors. As you say, many others who might have an eating disorder also have other physical or mental health issues that uh, accompany them. Sometimes you can call them comorbidities. Of course, yours is one of those very rare ones. But It really did surprise me when you you write about that in um, the first inpatient hospitalisation that you have. You talk about the fact that the reason why you were accepted was because this psychiatrist really broke the mould of a typical doctor. It is really surprising that when doctors have this kind of oath about doing no harm, wouldn't you be doing harm by refusing someone treatment?
1: Yeah it's it's a really tricky thing because I can I can actually see where they're coming from um because the first program I I was a part of was was a um a day program so we'd go in in the morning at about um at about 9:30 and leave at about 4:30 in the afternoon and it was a, it was 4 days during the week and that program had very strict rules about what you Allowed to do at the table and what you're not allowed to do, and you know the times that you ate and the things that you ate, and I struggled terribly with that, and I and I couldn't keep to their rules, um, and it harmed me. Um, so in, in hindsight, I, I can understand why mm. those doctors would be loath to have me in because they are they were afraid of doing harm. But when you are desperate for help, um, and you you know are so physically and mentally ill that it's difficult to get through the day and you're asking doctor after doctor to help you and they won't do it um it's incredibly disheartening and and harmful as well so it really is quite a double bind
0: it is yeah it, it's hard often to get anyone to take i guess ownership of of a problem and want to see it through um till it to its conclusion if it is complex because you know it doesn't have that straightforward journey but often with these particularly mental health issues there isn't really a a straight line or an upward trajectory there's a lot of up and down isn't there
1: that's exactly right a lot of you know getting a little bit better getting a little bit worse cycling around and around and it it can be incredibly frustrating i think especially for the people who know you and love you and and just want you to be well um it's a, it's a long process i think eating disorders uh, they the average time it takes to recover they they suspect is 7 years um and even then you know it doesn't happen for a lot of people mm. um but there's this kind of idea that goes with that: that if you just try hard enough, uh, then then you'll get there. And if you're not getting there, it's because you don't want it enough, or you're not trying hard enough, or there's something that you're missing. And I found I found that discourse really punitive as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that's often shared in the media I've seen that a lot is that you uh, have these people who come out and speak as success stories like here I I did modeling for example Um, I've developed an eating disorder I changed my behavior I'm happy and healthy now Uh, you know and I'm a success story I've recovered fully but it, it seems like that's quite surface level in the sense that you hear a lot that often people, even if they have, I guess, ticked the box of recovery um, in the medical profession's eyes, may still have residual thoughts or behaviours that um, might come back to the fore depending on times of stress in your life or, you know, triggering events.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's quite common for for people to um, have relapses years after recovering. You know, the nice thing is if you've done it, if you have recovered once it's easier to do it a second time i I think there's a real problem with language too that we talk so much about people fighting illnesses Mm. um cancer is a great a great uh example of that you know fighting fighting the cancer um triumphing uh, triumphing over it or um losing the battle you know if, if someone doesn't get better and it's not that simple um, I, I feel like this that that kind of military metaphor really lets people down because it does mean that if you you know if you don't conquer um, then you are conquered and if if you don't get better then you've somehow failed yeah um, and I feel like that's a really terrible message to be sending people.
0: I couldn't agree more and that leads into some of the ways that you've been reflecting on your chronic illness in Mm. particular and you write towards the beginning of this book illness is a state we do not think of as every day and that probably is the case for a number of Australians but then those with you know chronic illness it is something that you live with every day and as you write you get to a point where you think well maybe this is how my entire life will end up being it may not change too drastically and it certainly is different from the original life I had conceived or imagined for myself as a younger person before one gets chronically unwell.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. I, I kind of came to, it took a really long time, a, a really long time for me to let go of, of the idea of getting better and recovering because that's what I wanted so much. And I really, I, I thought when I started writing this book that I was writing a book that was about spaces and places and, and homes in that sense of the world but it wasn't until I was finishing up that I realized that what I was actually thinking about and worrying over and trying to understand was a, a sort of a nostalgia of a past date the way that I used to be a a kind of grieving of that healthy self that I had to let go of. Um, it took me a long time to figure out that's what I was doing because it is a grief to, to let go of that but the funny thing is that since I started thinking of my illness as chronic, I've, I've felt better <laughs> and, and I've, I've, it's, it's just made my life easier because you're not constantly checking everything that you're doing and looking, you know, trying to fix things that are impossible to mend
0: yeah it must be exhausting to be pushing up against something particularly the first illness that started this pushing up against something that you don't have control over that you know you so desperately want to find a pattern or you know some some rationality in it to have to like renege that control I guess is really difficult it would seem
1: especially for an anorexic. Yes, exactly, <laughs> even more so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I think we're, as, as human beings, we don't deal well with chaos and with the unpredictable and the uncontrollable. We like to have systems for things and, and medicine's like that too. It likes to be able to put things into discrete, discrete categories as a way of understanding them and controlling them. Um, but there's so much that we don't know about bodies and kind of all the different systems in them and how they all work mm. and it, it's been very interesting to me watching other people who who don't know me well or who are getting to know me well trying to figure out a pattern to the vomiting too and, and it was really reassuring to me in a way to kind of say okay so anybody dealing with this will try to react to it the way that I did this isn't my fault because I feel like that's a tricky thing too that if we think of illness in along these terms of battle lines, then blame very easily gets attached to that. And of course, that's a terrible thing to do to, to do to a sick person or to do yourself as a sick person. Uh, it's absolutely not a person's fault that they become unwell.
0: Yes. And um, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this idea because we're talking about physical spaces mm. um, around us, but also your physical self. Did you have moments where – because you did say at the beginning of the book that, um, you know, it's like your body was against you and it was doing something that you didn't want it to do. Did you feel like there was, I guess, a body-mind divide at any point where, you know, your mind was just kind of willing itself, willing the body to do something else?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me it was more that, um, you know, because my body was – betraying me was the term that I would use all the time and I'm yet to find a better metaphor because um, it's a problematic metaphor too. Yeah. Um, I sort of felt more like I could trust my mind in a way that I couldn't my body and I think in those days it kind of led me to try and negate the body and, and push against it and push it and try and overcome it all of the time. So to to be purely mind um or to prove that the mind had mastery over the body and of course you know when that gets attached to food um in the way that it did for me it's very easy to make systems and rules in place about what you eat and when you eat and and what you're allowed and how far you can push your body on how little fuel that all get tied up in that I I often joke that, you know, if I could have been a brain in a jar, I think I would have in those days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can understand, definitely. And really, it, it is interesting, some of the things that you draw attention to, And bring in your physical surrounds are the kind of rituals or habits or repetitious behaviours that you engage in that feel familiar and do provide a certain level of comfort. And I know we all would engage in those types of behaviours. I certainly do. I mean, because you talk about the way that you know you engage with the different houses that you've lived in, the different suburbs that you've lived in, and the sense of, I guess, connection or home that you've felt at different points in your life throughout this illness
1: yeah yeah it's I think I I really wanted to think about ritual and routine because they have always been important to me even before you know before I was sick I've always been a creature of habit as the saying goes and I've always felt a little bit embarrassed about that because I feel like a lot of the narratives that exist in the world really put value on the opposite Mm, of habit on spontaneity and spontaneity changing things up you know, being being reckless and brave and bold and, and going off into the world in that kind of a way. Um, but actually, routines are really important for a lot of people as a, as a means of grounding, but I think they're especially important for people who are chronically ill because they keep you centred and safe, you know, you, the, that kind of more adventurous life isn't necessarily open to you in the same way that it is who's, to someone who's, whose body operates the way that it should. So, but I also think it's gendered too, that we still think of the routine and, and the repetitious and the kind of homely as, as, the, as a women's realm, as much as we pretend we don't. I think I was also thinking about it too, because one of the things, one of the kind of personality traits. That it, that's intensified with eating disorders is a kind of focus on ritual and routine, especially around food. And we know that that's kind of related to some of the changes that happen in the brain when you're malnourished. But it, it meant that some of my early treatment um, was really focused around breaking patterns of behaviour and, and breaking away from rituals and routines and kind of sending us this message that anything that you do that's regular and patterned is disordered and, and wrong. And I really didn't feel like that was the case for me.
0: Yeah, that is a really interesting point. That's true. It does have, I guess, that negative connotation in the broader society, but also in that medical context of, um, you know, many things can be pigeonholed as an unhealthy behavior when it's actually serving a positive purpose.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and, and for me, part of that too was spending time with friends, you know, and having kind of rituals around that and, and routines around that and, you know, it was really discouraged from from doing that too
0: mm. and yeah i was it was quite visual when you were writing about sitting outside uh, in your courtyard you know eating your lunch and and the way that you describe that and it seemed like a really beautiful way to spend your lunch time particularly given that you work from home and um therefore yeah. you, you know you're not as much out and around um naturally as others would be that you kind of had these um routines that would break up your your day and certainly your work day
1: yeah, that's right. I've I've been working from home for a long time now. It's it's over a decade. I realised, which is crazy because yeah. I don't feel that old. Um, <laughs> but one of the one of the first things I learnt while doing that is that if you are working from home and by yourself, you need to have routines in place, or or you go mad. You either work far too much, or you don't get any work done, or you just mm. kind of sit and stew in your own juices. <laughs> um, you, you know, you need to find a, your own way of breaking up the day, given that it's not done artificially for you in way that the way that an office job might.
0: Yes, exactly. And In terms of the fact that you are, you're a freelance writer, you're an author and you also tutor um, in a range of subjects and I'm sure many other things, it it seems like a life that, you know, is very successful and you've had some great already early career successes in um, the the previous book, Small Acts of Disappearance, and now, you know, having great essays in Lifted Brow, this fantastic book, it's a really great uh, achievement with all that you've had to battle with over these years and in this book you kind of draw attention to the fact well two things really one Mm. that you know you would call yourself a high functioning anorexic. <laughs> and and on the other hand, that real difficulty that when things go poorly, and perhaps, you know, you've had less food than you might normally over a certain period, that it is really hard to sustain any kind of thought. And I was just um, holding those two thoughts together thinking, my gosh, the, the career that you've pursued is really all about thinking like deep thought and and writing (laughs) and and yet you have to battle um with one of the massive uh symptoms of this illness which is that cognitive lack of uh clarity and lack of energy
1: yeah it's lack of concentration more than clarity i'd say Mm -hmm. because i do feel that sometimes you you get kind of intense clear thought you know that your kind of cognition does change um and some people some people get very lethargic and some people get a little bit manic. And I've always had the kind of manic, um, energy to mine, Mm. um, which is, which is terrible in its own way because you are exhausted, but you cannot stop. But it, yeah, it becomes very hard to concentrate on things. So, and, and I mean, as a writer that has meant that it's difficult to sit down for more than about an hour at a time and, and nothing's out when I'm unwell, and it does make writing essays very tricky because you're following the one train of thought, you know, in, in various ways as the thread that ties the thing together. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can be it can be very difficult. Um, I used to joke that I wrote much more poetry when I was when I was unwell because it it's well suited to those short, sharp bursts of concentration, mm. and and that I actually don't think I would have been able to write essays um, until I started to get a little bit better for that reason.
0: Yeah, that that is really interesting, and the fact that there isn't really a, a consistent way of being, um, or being, I guess, physically or mentally impeded, yeah. it all kind of fluctuates. Um, how did you approach writing this book? Because it is that each chapter or essay is quite distinct and yet it is still really a cohesive whole so i'm just um would like to know i guess why you picked the kind of format that you've used to to get your ideas explored in such a way it feels to me at least like a very relatable accessible way for people to understand and empathize and have their mind i guess picked the interest picked um on this issue which i think is quite rare and unique if if you're coming as an outsider who hasn't had to deal with such a a difficult illness or illnesses
1: yeah you've just made my day that's exactly what i wanted oh good (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah because i think the structure of this book really is there's two main threads of essays and some of them are the the essays that I'm more used to writing and that I sort of think of as more traditional essays and they're the ones that take an idea and and kind of run with it and and follow that through and and bring in material from, you know, all different kinds of places, from different, uh, from other books, um, from, you know, from science, from medicine, um, and from, you know, my own life as well. But interspersed with those are these much more fragmentary essays, um, that are kind of a series of of snapshots or or even prose poems um, about little day-to-day occurrences, or mostly entirely drawn from life. Um, And I really wanted those essays to work as a kind of the concrete examples of the sort of things that I was talking about. So the bigger essays are kind of like, here are the ideas, and those fragmentary ones are, and this is what it means for me in the world as a person every day to kind of give those two different, two different approaches, I guess, across the whole book.
0: That does come across. You know, you bring up some small snippets of life that are seemingly um, unrelated at points or, or related. It flows together so nicely and yet there are just so many different, I guess, patterns or mosaics um, across your world as you write these chapters or essays and I think that yeah. is what was really you're able to really delve into it and get engrossed in it um, because of those kind of details that you provide of, of life.
1: Yeah well I also thought that I, that I couldn't write a book that was about ordinariness and, and about these everyday rituals without trying to capture them too mm. um, and I like that, that they seem to happen in, in small fragments and small moments, and and that I, because I think too that is how we narrate our own lives. We take these small events and uh, you know and string them together um, into into a narrative, and you know we you change that depending on your perspective and, and what happens. But you know each of those little incidences build, builds up in a way to make something bigger.
0: Yeah. And really, I'm also quite interested in in this kind of parallel that we've just been talking about the the physical space and the different mm. spaces you've lived in, which is also a real focus um, for this book and the way that you relate to those spaces, not only your parents' home, but also the share houses you've lived in. You've lived in quite a few of them because of the Precariousness yeah. of <laughs> of rentals, and certainly in Sydney, I think it it definitely when I was reading sounded worse than the situation in Melbourne uh, in terms of the way that um, the condition that houses are in and the prices are so so ridiculously high. Um, but, but also your connection to the different suburbs and the ways that suburbs have changed and also the fact that, as you say, suburbs were invented um, and this discussion around concepts like suburbs, concepts like homes and the way that you manage one's home and, I guess, what you would consider home or where did you get to in terms of what home is and, and how you relate to, I guess, Newtown as um, the suburb that you yeah. do connect with with, it seems.
1: Well I think I was thinking about that a lot because the uh, the flip side of that ordinariness is that the things that we consider ordinary and everyday become very easily become invisible to us um, mm. or or we accept them as what is normal, what is natural and what is right. So it's a very political thing to consider something ordinary. Um, that's just the way the world is, um, not something that we should you know interrogate or think to change um and i think that's one of the things that's happened lately is that our generation has a very different way of inhabiting houses um you know i i started i think i started share housing when i was 24 uh and i'm 35 now and and I, i tell this story a bit but i remember um one of my friends had a house nearby and they were living with someone who was 32, And I was like, oh, my God, imagine still share housing when you're in your 30s. That is, like, so ridiculous (laughs) and lame. Um, But actually it's become the reality for so many of us. Um, And, you know, and we don't have, you know, I I don't think the wider society has adjusted yet to think of that as a normal way of living. We're still kind of so tied to this idea of home ownership and that kind of stable and settled way of, of living in a place that that really um is inaccessible to so many of us i moved to newtown when i when i moved out of menai which is my home suburb menai is kind of in, in the southwest of sydney it's about um an, an hour's drive or an hour and a half by public transport away from the cbd and it's a very beautiful place but i always felt kind of not that I didn't quite belong there, and at the time I was like, "Well, this is obviously because of the place. It's you know, it's too suburban, it's too this, it's too that." Um, so when I moved, I moved to a place that had a reputation as being, you know, left of center and unusual, and thought that you know I'd find my people there, um, and suddenly you would know, find my place in the world. And I did find my people here, but you know, the shock to me was that I still felt out of place, and that actually that's probably the way I'm always going to feel. Mm. Um, and, and possibly a way that most people who make things, um, I think it's very common for creative people and for writers to feel slightly, slightly out of the world. And that's kind of partly what makes you do what you do.
0: Well, it certainly might give one a little bit more distance to reflect. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, yeah, it does give you a distance um, and that kind of uh, observer perspective that I think is really important to writing.
0: Exactly. I'm speaking with Fiona Wright and she's the author of a new book, The World Was Whole, which is out through Giramondo Press, who have released many of Fiona's books. Fiona, we've been talking about home ownership and the fact that it's so unattainable to many at the moment. And Mm. part of that is, well, there is this expectation, I guess, once one reaches adulthood that there are certain boxes to check off, and many people might unknowingly be checking them off perhaps being influenced by societal expectations or maybe Mm. family expectations about having a long term partner or getting married to that partner perhaps having children uh, traveling the world as a young person you know finishing their degree getting into a a steady full-time job there are all these expectations of what Mm. the norm should be um, which is not right obviously and we've uh, on this show spoken about a range of things such as you know that expectation that in order to be a productive citizen one must be you know a full-time worker preferably with an employer you know all those kind of expectations that, that really don't uh, understand the complexity of life um, that don't really count for having children or being a carer of a parent or having a chronic illness uh, mm. like you do but it did strike me that um, when you were quoting a poet Sarah Manguso's account of her autoimmune illness in um, the two kinds of decay, you write about these major milestones that she couldn't check off and was not following like her friends were, such as owning a home or a car, having a job that wasn't temporary, she hadn't married or lived with someone, she was 32 years old and unwed, um, freelancing, she was a renter, all of these things that... um, that don't necessarily fit that common experience, at least what is portrayed in society as being common. I wonder what your experience has been and how you've, I guess, encountered perhaps societal expectations and the fact that perhaps you can't or wouldn't want to fulfil certain expectations.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I always cried when I first read that passage in Two Kinds of Decay because it just felt so perfect for my life and Mangusa goes on to say that you know she has all these rationalizations for why she lives this way that you know, she's like oh you know I don't a full-time job would would wear me down I you know I don't want to live with someone who doesn't um understand me properly And she's like but the real reason is that I always act as if my illness could come back tomorrow mm. and I don't know what state that would leave me in I I don't think it's quite that intense for me I've just found as I've as I've lived that my life hasn't followed that particular trajectory, and there are a lot of those things that I that I don't want, you know, and and plenty of people do want them, and that's fine. But a lot of them are increasingly out of reach for our generation as well, you know. I felt like I was I was waiting for a kind of adulthood to descend upon me, and then suddenly realised that actually I would be waiting forever if I did that because mm. part of these I have freelance work because. It suits me and it suits my body, but also because that's the economy that we live in at the moment and and none of that is likely to change anytime soon. So I think the problem is that these we don't have the social narratives yet to fit to the experiences of our generation and and I think they're starting to come through. People are starting to talk about it more and write about it more, but it's it's very hard to, to kind of have a life that, feels like that always feels like it's going against the grain and it's not because there are so many people in the same situation it's just those old narratives die hard
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly it's so true and certainly your book is contributing to that as well by enlightening others into you know different ways of being and also I expect that others with a chronic illness even if it may not be the same as yours might also find some solace and ability to relate to your story and might get some value from that as well given that chronic illness is often written about in a certain way too and it's um this is also, I think, a very different and healthy way of um, exploring such a, a complex topic.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly hope hope so. Mostly because one of the things that really helped me make that switch to start thinking about my illness as chronic illness and, and even as disability was starting to read more and interact more with the disability community um, online. I mean, the disability community... Is very online um, Mm -hmm. because online spaces are fantastic for people whose bodies don't necessarily let them physically socialize with people but there are so many smart and articulate people writing there about you know what what the experience is like what it means how to kind of think about your illness in a way that isn't you know that 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 is a fact of a fact of your life and not a tragedy of your life or you know not an inspiration or or anything like that just trying to accept it as it is and i really don't think i would have been able to make that leap um without reading the work of others so it, it you know i really hope that this book was a part of that conversation too
0: yeah, I do think it, it has a lot of value and that's such a great point about uh, the fact that you know it's difficult perhaps for some to be able to express themselves in a book perhaps because of the physical restrictions that are placed upon some people – I've had interviews with people who have been suffering with chronic fatigue, and it, that's another oh. example of it has a mind and body component, and it can certainly try and constrain someone's expression, certainly creative expression, but that hasn't stopped a lot of people such as like Jennifer Breyer, for example, making a a really popular film about her experience,
1: yeah, yeah, and I you know I think I think this is so important because I mean, this is something I was keenly aware of when I was writing Small Acts of Disappearance that I didn't realize that I had anorexia for years, Mm. years and years and years, both because the physical condition kind of operated as a mask. I was like, oh, I've got this, I've got this thing, so I can't eat these things the same way that someone who's celiac isn't going to eat bread or a diabetic isn't going to like munch down on an ice cream right now. That's all I'm doing. I'm just managing my condition um, through my diet. So there was a marking going on too, but also I had this particular idea about what anorexia was, what it looked like, and what the type of people who got it were like. And it was all completely wrong, but it was drawn from these media depictions from the outside. I thought it was you know, something that only happened to teenagers, that yeah. they were silly and vain and selfish, um, and, and they just wanted to be pretty. Mm. None of that was a part of my experience, so I was like, well, I'm not like that. And it wasn't until that very first program that I did where I was suddenly stuck in a room with a whole bunch of people who knew they had anorexia and who were talking about their illnesses and the things that they were saying could so easily have come out of my own brain that I kind of went, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I know what's happening here. But, you know, I'd, I'd never seen or read anything that fit with what I'd been through. So I was I was really trying to write something that felt more honest than than the depictions that exist. And I think that's why it's important that you know we go to you know for for all of the kind of debating that's happening around identity politics at the moment. I think that's the reason that it's important that people write their own stories because they know things that people on the outside don't and they understand what's an assumption that's incorrect and harmful uh, in a way that somebody else might not.
0: Often it is really difficult for people to understand at the beginning or relate to the fact that Mm. um, someone just won't eat the, I guess, the amount that they're supposed to. And it, it certainly can confound a whole range of people. This is certainly one great way for people to have a better understanding of anorexia in particular
1: yeah i think I think it is an illness too that people are very frightened of i mean mm. it is it is terrifying and it's such a visceral and physical illness too you know it it not all the time but often you know you can see it so clearly in people's bodies now of course, there's no one way that people with eating disorders look it's just that sometimes it it's very it can be very clear and so it does frighten people. But I also think it's still very heavily stigmatised in a way that a lot of mental illnesses aren't because it's so difficult to understand and I think also because it mostly happens to women. I mean, mm-hmm. it does happen to men as well. It happens to older people as well. It happens to all kinds of people and it's very difficult sometimes for men to report it because it's seen as this girl's illness. you know. But I don't think we've done the work in destigmatizing it the way that we have for illnesses like anxiety and depression.
0: Yeah, that is, it's a really a very good point. And certainly people with eating disorders might have anxiety and or depression as a result of having anorexia. But also the other issue I think which you raised there is the gendered element of eating disorders, which I think is often lost as well. We are seeing more and more research into men who um, get eating disorders and also have this kind of body dysmorphia where they um, have this desire to build muscles. And so people would think, oh, well, you you don't have an eating disorder because you're not skinny. You know, There's a whole range of disordered eating and and exercising behaviours that would count as encompassing an eating disorder. So that's another way where men and women might differ in their experience of of this illness. But um, as you say, if it's not portrayed or discussed more widely, then we don't have that nuance and we can't pick up warning signs and treat people properly.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. Now, I've become really interested lately in, in gender in medicine, basically. And and the different ways that different illnesses are approached and and even given funding depending on whether they happen to men and women and the different experiences men and women have with doctors it's, yeah. it's really fascinating to me and I've been reading lots and lots on it at the moment <laughs>
0: I'm going to interview hopefully someone very soon who's written about that issue and how certainly even in emergency departments, you know, men and boys are given more painkillers than women are and pain is often discounted.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, You know, and there's a lot of research done around conditions like um, endometriosis in particular and, you know, how long it takes people to get a diagnosis. The thing I read recently that really fascinated me is that women who, seek treatment for infertility that's linked to endometriosis get a diagnosis and treatment at least i think it's about twice as fast as women who seek treatment because of pain wow Uh, yes it's there are all these assumptions that sit underneath this system that we think of as purely scientific and rational and i'm kind of fascinated in in picking that apart a little bit
0: well it would be great to explore that in more detail and the biases that that exist certainly uh, i saw over the weekend the discussion about the contraceptive pill and the seven day break and how people initially were saying oh it's the pope's fault but in fact it was doctors who were trying to get women pregnant that there was this rebound effect when you started taking sugar pills and stopped taking the hormones and then they forgot or didn't think about reassessing things if you weren't trying to get pregnant and were just taking it for actual contraceptive purposes
1: (laughs) as per its actual design yeah oh that's (laughs) i
0: know i'm glad we're at least looking at them now and certainly there is a bit more of a movement as this book really does highlight fiona i very much value your openness and you're so articulate um it's just great to speak with you and a wonder to read this book and i really hope that um, people can get around to reading it
1: thank you so much
0: thank you very much fiona I've been speaking with Fiona Wright, who is an essayist and an author, and she's written a a really great book, The World Was Whole, which we've been discussing. It's out through Giramondo Press, and definitely I think Small Acts of Disappearance is um, a really important predecessor to this book. If any of these topics of discussion have brought up issues for you or questions, the Butterfly Foundation's National Helpline is one 800 and it's open from 8am till midnight seven days a week and also uh, you can call 13 11 14 which is Lifeline, a 24-hour Lifeline literally and they're both great resources and I've heard really good things about the Butterfly Foundation's